Hey, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just going to start with a disclaimer. Um, My disclaimer this morning is, uh, I have multiple things I should probably give a disclaimer for, but the main one that I'm giving it for is, um, I've got, if, if if it's unusual that I'm sitting here, it's because I've got this, like, pinched nerve thing going on in my neck that's creating, like, massive pain in my arm that... The good news is I have muscle relaxers for it. Um, the, the other good news is, is there's plausible deniability for anything I say here today. So, um, but if I, this is like one of the few positions where my arm doesn't hurt. So if I do this, I'm not trying to be weird. Um, uh, but it's just because I'm trying to get relief from the pain in my arm. So, so that's, my, that's my disclaimer. Um, if, you wanna, if you think about uh, me, you can pray about that because it's been bothering me all week. So... Um, but, um, but I'm trusting that the Lord will like, bring his word forward and edify us through, in spite of all of our weaknesses, um, in spite of my weaknesses this morning. Um, you know, if you're just joining us, we are in the Gospel of John, and um, we're, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. Actually, we're not going to finish it 2 completely. We're going to do verses 13 through 22 this morning. Um, I think I've got the wrong date range up on the screen. But yeah, we're going to be in John chapter 2, verses... Oh, that's right. That's not even right either. The reflection of my week. I think it's 13 through 22 this morning. Um, and, and uh, you know, what we've been seeing over the last few weeks in John is that um, Jesus came and, and John declared that, John the Baptist declared that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we're going we're gonna to see a little bit of that being talked about in our text this morning. Um, and that Jesus has come to replace like all of the old and bring in the new. Last week we saw that he replaces all of the ritual of Jewish circumcision and he's bringing in the new wine of like his grace and his kingdom and, um, and the hope that we have in him. You know, this morning what we're going to see is that, that Jesus brings in a new temple and that he replaces the old temple with all of its like significance with himself. And, and we're going to see it, uh, the text is really going to break out into two sections. The first is that Jesus acts with authority in verses thir- 13, through, 13 through 17, I think it is. And then Jesus answers with mystery when people challenge him in verses 18 through 22. Um, I'm just going to kind of shorten my introduction up. Um, so why don't we just stand right now this morning and I will read our text and then we'll get, into, we'll get into our study together. This is the Gospel of John, God's word for his church. And the Passover of the, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you, do, do you show us seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word, and I thank you. 
um, for just the work of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us, for his spirit who empowers us and teaches us. And I would just um, want to submit, I just want to submit everything that happens here this morning to the work of your spirit. Ask that um, your spirit would speak through me, um, even in my weakness, and that your spirit would open up our hearts to receive your word and, and have it give life to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to switch between uh, standing and sitting, I think, because it's hard for me to talk when I'm sitting still. Like for, for those of you that know me, uh, you know what I mean by that. But um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things going on in my head this morning. You know, but before I jump into the text uh, this morning, I want to take a, a, a little detour um, I don't, uh, and talk about the whole situation around Tyree Nichols. Has everybody heard about what's going on with Tyree Nichols in Memphis and, and everything? If you're not aware of it, uh, I think it was about three weeks ago, um, Tyree Nichols was stopped by some police officers in Memphis. Um, the result of that was that he had gotten himself, he got beaten pretty severely, um, very severely, and three days later he died in the hospital. Um, this past week, the, the police department released, uh, released video of that encounter, which has led to, as you would expect, like protests um, in different places around the nation. And and um, whenever, we're, whenever we're faced with things like this, I always struggle in my role here because I'm, I'm, it's always hard to know what things to speak into. You know, and, and one of the things that, you know, like we're committed to teaching through God's word. We believe God's word is what he uses to bring life. And so we're not going to be a church that's just driven by whatever the latest public thing is and the latest um, fad or crisis or depravity that our culture is speaking about. We're not going to let that drive our teaching. We're going to let the scriptures drive our teaching. And so I always struggle with, okay, when should I speak into these things and when should I not? You know, uh, back in 2020 during the George Floyd thing, one of the things that I kind of came to the conclusion is that when something rises to a place of like into our national consciousness and and when it's really kind of speaking into an issue of like national sensitivity, um, that it's really helpful for us. I think it, it could be helpful for us to be able to speak into that because it's really, really important for us as Christians to think well about the issues that our culture is facing us because God just doesn't want us to be disengaged. He wants us to be in the middle of life in our culture and speaking into those things. And so I thought I should take the opportunity to speak into it this morning. You know, one of the other reasons why I think I should speak into it is because the very text that we're on. The text that we're on just providentially um, is that is Jesus going into the temple, making a whip, and, and what, what appears to be anger, it doesn't explicitly say that, um, driving people out of the temple, turning over tables, and, and uh, restoring what was like broken. And, and back in 2020, uh, around everything that was going on with George Floyd, I saw this text and, and the others like it, invoked... Um, as like, a, as like a justification for all of, the, all of the rioting and burning of the cities that was going on. It was kind of like, well, Jesus flipped over tables, so let's burn down Portland, right? Like, I don't know if any of you guys saw that, but this text was used for that purpose. You know, and, and, and it's true that it's when, and, and I'm going to say this too, there's, this is my, part of my many disclaimers. Like, I know very little about what happened in Memphis, you know, I know what the media told me, so I'm sure that everything I know is absolutely true. <laughs> and it's completely exhaustive, right? Like, but I, so I'm just operating today as if, like, when Memphis, the city of Memphis and the police department did their due diligence, and, and which resulted in the firing of those officers and criminal charges being pressed against them, that, 
that they did their due diligence and are acting in integrity on that. And I know that that's a big jump, but that's just the position I have to be in this morning because I don't know everything and I never will. You guys with me on that? But there's a couple things that I think that this text where Jesus drives people out of the temple in that situation, because people in our culture are rightly kind of responding in anger. When you see some of the things that happen there in Memphis, I think anger is an appropriate response. And here you have Jesus responding to some things in anger. And, and I think it's important for us to like, think through this idea of what does righteous anger look like? I wasn't even planning on talking about this until yesterday around righteous anger because I don't think this text is about righteous anger. It's not like Jesus like, was saying, like, hey, I want to like, model to people how, I should, how they should protest something when they're upset. And so I'm going to go and do this thing in the temple. That, that's not what Jesus was doing. He's, and hopefully we'll have time to see what he was doing. Um, but he does demonstrate that there is time for us sometimes to be angry about things. In fact, Paul even commands it in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know, so the question before us is, how do we, as Christians, when we're encountering like the brokenness of this world, and, and there's certain things that should, we should be angry about, how do we like, live wisely and think wisely about those things? It's really, really important because the mission of the mission of Jesus Christ is at stake. And so there's a couple of things I just want to like impress upon us um, in light of that and other things as you read the news and, and are hit with the brokenness of this world. Um, first thing is like first one of the first things I want to talk to us about is that we just need to be praying for that situation. Um, in First Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he says this in First Timothy 2. He says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth couple things that that text reveals to us like one we should be praying for our governing leaders two it reveals to us that their job is to create a culture where we can lead a tranquil and quiet life and that and that a, a, a culture that has that allows like the gospel to go forward because it's part of what god uses in his desire to see all people come to faith you know, and I think for I think as we as we enter into prayer, there's a bunch of things. Like you can you can be pro justice and pro police because one of the roles of government is to ensure like a peaceful and quiet life. And and because of human depravity, like the God gives like the power of the sword to the government. You don't have to burn down like all authority because authority was abused. And we should be so we should be praying for we should be praying for the salvation of everybody involved. We should be praying for comfort. We should be praying for for our kings and those in authority, so that we can live that tranquil and quiet life and godliness and dignity, because it's in line with God's desires. So I just want to challenge us for one to pray. You know, the, I already spoke about the fact that this text is so often misused. Anytime somebody wants to be angry about something, right? Like. Well, I'm angry about the fact that Steve went five minutes over, but Jesus got angry, so, right? Like, just memorize these verses. You can invoke it any time, right? Like, and there is a time to be get angry, but we have to really be honest with ourselves that it's way easier to, like, respond in fleshly anger. In fact, the Bible talks about warns against anger over and over and over and over and over again. 
And it has a few cases where anger is spoken about appropriately, but we need to be honest with ourselves and realize like, oh, my propensity is to respond to things in unrighteous anger way more than it is in righteous anger. You know, in fact, um, in fact, uh, I think one of the things is we talk about righteous anger and responding to things like this um, is we have to realize that God's character is not angry. He is not an angry person. So if you, if you are an angry person, like this text doesn't have any justification for that. In fact, this is what God says about himself, Exodus 34. He's talking to Moses and it says this, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Do you hear what he's saying there? Like what God is, is he's full of loving kindness and truth. He's abounding in it. It's overflowing from him. He is compassionate and he's gracious. He keeps his like loving kind commitment to people for thousands and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's who God is. And he's slow to anger. And he will, like, he will deal with, he will bring justice, but he's patient about it. Like, so, so wherever you guys find yourself in the emotions around this or any other kind of current event, like, we shouldn't be characterized as angry people if we're going to reflect our father accurately because he's not. He is compassionate and gracious in fact, James kind of applies that same language to us in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We should be slow to speak, slow to anger, because we, we're focused on God's righteousness, like Righteous anger comes out of God's righteousness. Is when we see things that like pervert righteousness or distort the truth. Those are things to get angry about. But what James is telling us here is be slow to anger and be quick to hear. We should be people that listen to those, those people that differ from us. We should be people that listen to other opinions. We should be people that are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You know, so I just want to challenge you guys as you go to work tomorrow morning, as you take your kids to school, as you're talking with somebody, as you're posting on the internet, as you're, we need to think through like what it means to reflect the compassion and grace and character of God simultaneously with, with the fact that he is, he is going to bring justice and he cares about justice. I think what the tone of the scriptures is, is that we should have our doors wide open to, um, to res- reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness. And we should just barely crack the door of, of anger when it comes. Because we should be slow to anger, quick to hear, quick to forgive. You know, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to this is because that very thing. Because our testimony, when you go to work and start talking about these things, it's so easy just to... Um, like think in political categories or worldly categories instead of biblical categories. What I mean by that is that when something like this happens, it typically, the response is typically like, 
um, are either like a Republican response or a Democrat response, right? right. And, we're, and we're always being relentlessly pulled to like adopt one of those responses. Well, let me just ask you some simple questions. Does God care about like racial injustice? Absolutely he does, right? It's not a democratic issue. That's a biblical issue, right? Does God care about the life of the unborn? Absolutely he does. It's not a conservative issue. It's a biblical issue. Does God care about tyranny and somebody being beaten and killed? Absolutely he does. It's not a democratic issue or a republican issue. It's a human issue. It's a biblical issue. And as Christians, we need, to like, we need to think well and think in biblical categories and think in biblical solutions. And I don't have time to give that to you. I know all the solutions, just to be clear. But you have to pay extra for that. But we have to think in biblical categories and, and resist, the, resist the pull to always like, be polarized in one way or the other. Whichever perspective you're coming from, we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, think biblically. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 4. He's talking to the church again. He says, conduct yourselves, church, with wisdom towards outsiders. He's talking about those who aren't in the faith. Your neighbors, your co-workers, right? Your classmates. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You know, let me tell you, like this call to to wisdom, our culture today is bloated with information and is starving for wisdom. You know, and I, I just want to encourage all of us as if these conversations come up. And I, I trust, like, it seems like the, the whole thing in Memphis has been handled so much better than the whole thing with George Floyd has been. So I'm thankful for that. And I'm hoping that it, it doesn't have the same repercussions. But my challenge is you're not going to find the wisdom to, to let your speech be with, seasoned with salt on MSNBC or on Fox News, right? Like, you're not going to find it there. The wisdom to be able to respond to people biblically and winsomely and like attractively, tastefully, that's what seasoned with salt means, is only going to come from the Lord and it's only going to come from us thinking biblically about things. And that idea of, and that, idea of um, that we should, be, we should like, throw the doors wide open for forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and just barely crack the, the door open for anger... Um, it's exactly what Jesus does here. Even though this story seems like it's, an, this is angry Jesus, you know. Um, well, I think when you, when you go through and see what he's doing here, you're going to realize, like, no, he's just doing the opposite. He's throwing the door wide open for people to come and have their worship restored. Um, even as he deals with injustice. Um, if you have questions or comments or objections about anything I've said, my email is steve at creeksidemac.com. Just Steve. No Steve M. Just Steve. Um, such a strong name, Steve. <laughs> Wish I could have been something cool, like, I don't know, whatever. So I, that Steve should strike fear into your hearts, let me tell you. <laughs> steve at creeksidemac.com. That was my muscle relaxers talking, not me. So... Um, <laughs> 
All right, let's get, let's get into the text. And I, I think I can get through this text in the time that we have left. Um, verse 13. We find out in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up into Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seating, seated, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So here you have this scene. What, what's going on in the law is that, is that in the law, like God said, like, you know, I think it's three times a year that the, that the people of Israel should go up to Jerusalem and should celebrate these different festivals. And one of the celebrations was the Passover. So Jesus and his family and his disciples were heading up into Jerusalem. And when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, like during these pilgrimage times, that there would have been hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem. The place is packed. And, and, during, and, and when he gets into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple, he doesn't like what he finds because he finds like this, this commotion of this marketplace going on um, of, of people like selling sheep and oxen and doves, of money changers changing, uh, cha- exchanging money for people. And he, he makes a whip. Story's not making this up. And he drives them out of the temple. He drives the animals out. He flips over the tables and he tells them, stop making my father's house like a a shopping mall. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story before. And I think most of us, when we envision this, um, have like the scale of like, well, this is probably an area about the size of this room, right? And there was like a few booths and there was a few cows and Jesus like did this thing. The scale of this is quite different in reality. Because, because what was going on here is that, like I said, there was hundreds of thousands of people coming. If you were one of those people that sold sacrificial animals, this is like Black Friday and Cyber Monday all like combined into one. And, and the scale of it was massive. Like I have a photo of the, I mean, of not a real photo, but a drawing of the uh, Temple Mount in the time of Jesus. Um, right there in the middle of the picture, you have the temple building proper. And then all around it, you see this huge courtyard? That's 35 acres. It's enough for, since it's uh, playoff season, that's 26 football fields. Every NFL team could be playing in there simultaneously, and you still have 10 football fields left over, right? You've got, um, it's 35 acres. They estimate that it could easily kind of like have 75,000 people in there. And when Jesus walks in there, the entire thing is turned into this big, like, marketplace. There's cows, and there's smell, and there's sheep, and there's doves, and there's people trying to get your attention. There's, it is just this madhouse of, of uh, commercialism. And Jesus wasn't going to have it. You know, the, and that's what he says. Why are you making my father's house a house of merchandise, and he shuts it down. You know, there was a couple problems with it. One of them is, is that um, that area, this big courtyard around there, is called the Court of the Gentiles. The reason why it's called the Court of the Gentiles is, is that's the area that God designated where um, anyone could come and pray and worship him. You didn't have to be a Jew. You didn't even have to be a clean Jew. Um, anyone could come and worship the Lord there. And so what, what Jesus should have found when he came into the temple at that place was people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue coming to seek the God of Israel from Egypt and Ethiopia and, and Persia and Assyria and Rome. 
should have been this place of prayer and meditation and worship for all of the nations. And what it had turned into was a money-making scheme for the temple and for the high priest. In fact, commentators in the time of Annas, the high priest, uh, who lived around this time, actually called this Annas Bazaar because it was just one big shopping mall. And he sold, he sold franchises in the temple so people could peddle their wares. They also required people to exchange money um, because you weren't allowed to use any currency in the temple other than the Tyrrhenian stator, which I always thought it, was, it had to be special uh, temple currency, but it's not actually. It's, it's, it's a currency from ty- ty- Tyre. And, um, and the reason why is because the, the, the currency from Tyre was actually pure silver, and they didn't want, like, cut-rate money. They wanted, like, real money. And they gouged people not just on the cost of the animals but on the cost of exchanging money. Like, if you, have, if you had to exchange money, even if you had to break change, if you came in with Tyrrhenian money and had to make change, they would gouge you for it. And so this has just turned into this big money-making scheme where, where the worship of God had been commercialized beyond belief. It was, also, it was also this arrogant nationalistic sort of thing because the Jews had no like, use for Gentiles. Look at all this square footage we could utilize. Right? Like, we don't want dirty Gentiles coming into our church. Right? We don't want the other group of people coming in. We want to be, have it just be like us and have it be convenient so we, we can one-stop shop, get our animals and kill them here you know, all at the same time. So it was this weird kind of twisted nationalism, this weird um, arrogant elitism, and this commercialism all baked together that Jesus is responding to, and he drives them out. Now, I think there's a warning here for us, because we live in an age where Christianity has been commercialized, consumerized, what otherized? I had three. What? Trivialized. Trivialized. That was the one. That was the third one. Thank you. Nationalized. And the exact same thing was going on in the temple. And Jesus was angry about it because they were cooking their national identity and their commercial identity and everything together. And, and I don't have time to go into it all, but I just want to challenge you guys to check your hearts. Like when you come to gather with God's people to worship, is it really to worship God because of what he's done Um, for you in Jesus Christ and what he's promised to do for you? Or are you coming here for like commercialized reasons, consumer reasons, or nationalistic reasons, right? Like don't cook those things together because there is no nation. When when Psalm 2 says that the nations raise against against God, guess who is included in that? Our nation is too. Like, there is no nation that is going to bring in the kingdom of God other than, other than the one that Jesus Christ establishes when he, when he returns. You know, after he drives them out, verse 17, the disciples remembered this scripture, and it says, zeal for your house will consume me. We'll come back to this, but um, it, we'll come back to this idea. Zeal for your house will consume me. And then it moves on. Um, In verse 18, we have Jesus answers with mystery. And look what he says. It says, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? So as you can imagine, Jesus clearing off 35 acres of, of like marketplace and driving all those animals out into the street when that place is packed with thousands of people created a little bit of a stir. 
And for whatever reason, the religious leaders didn't come down like, and just arrest Jesus. They were, they were probably like, hmm, maybe we should see what this guy has to say. And so they ask him a question. Like, hey, if you're going to come in here and act like you own this place, like, do some sort of miracle so that we know that you are who, like, you have the authority to do this thing. And Jesus doesn't really give them what he wants. He, he actually makes somewhat of an absurd offer to them. He says, well, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Well, they're not going to be like, oh, okay, let's get the sledgehammers, demo day, right? Like, they respond with, they respond with like, like condescension and contempt. Look what they say. It says, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? It's like, who do you think you are? That's nonsense, Jesus. And that's where the story ends. We don't, we don't know how Jesus responds. We don't know like, what, the, what the Jewish leaders do at that point in time. But John does give us some insider information. Look at, verse, look at verse 21. But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. We had said this last week, or I had said this last week, that, that um, John wants us to read this, his book meditatively and mindfully, like knowing where it's going. And this is one of the clues that he says. Like, he says, basically, you're not going to understand what's happening here. In fact, the disciples didn't understand what was happening here until they understood it in light of the resurrection. But once they saw the resurrection, once they saw where this story is going, then it all began to make sense. Then they knew what Jesus meant when he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will rise it up again. And the same thing's true for us. Like this story of Jesus cleansing the temple won't make any sense unless we like interpret it in light of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. So let's go back. Let's circle back around then to verse, um, to verse 16. You know, where Jesus first speaks in this story, right? He says, he says, take these things away and stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. A couple really important things that Jesus does there. First of all, he calls it his father's house. Which we just heard in chapter 1, that Jesus is the son of God. And here he's claiming that his fa- this is his father's house. And by implication, as his son, he is heir to that house. Like Jesus is making a statement about who he is. And when, and when the story goes on where Jesus is talking about building a new temple, uh, it all begins to come together. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, written like a thousand years before this, um, God promised this to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to what he says. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So what Jesus is subtly doing here is he's saying, you know what, guys? Um, as I chase you all out of the temple, I'm the guy that God promised would come. I'm the king of the, Israel. I'm the one that has all authority. In fact, God is my father, and I'm his son. 
Now, you don't see any reaction at this point in, in the story of John um, to Jesus' statement from the religious leaders. I think probably because they had other things on their mind, right? Like, he just shut down, like, the internet on Cyber Monday. <laughs> we don't care who he says he is. We're losing money. But I think afterwards, when they were getting together and sneaking a side of bacon or something, they were... <laughs> Sorry, that just slipped out again. <laughs> Cyclobenzaprine. Thank you. So, uh, where was I going? They were probably like, oh, did, did he really say what I think he said? And, and we're going to see them react to those similar statements later on in the story of John. But Jesus was telling us who he is. He's the one that has all authority. He's the king of Israel. He's the promised coming one. And he is going to build a new house for the worship of God. And he's going to change and purify worship forever. You know, the other thing it reveals to us is it reveals something about his purpose to us. Look what when the disciples say, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a quote from Psalm 69, and, in, and um, I always, when, every time I read this story before, before this week when I started studying it deeply, like the, I would always read, zeal for your house will consume me, as kind of just as like, but well, Jesus was like really into like the temple, and he wanted to make sure it was like handled correctly, which, yeah, that's probably true to some degree, but it's more than just being a fan. Where's Dominic? You know, he's got his big San Francisco yeah. 49er shirt. Did he leave? He, he walked out? Oh, no. Zeal, right? Like, that's kind of how I viewed it. Like, oh, Jesus is a fan of the temple, and he wants to clean it up. Oh, but there's so much more to it going on than that when we understand the resurrection. Because the word consume, the word consume is translated different ways in, the, in our Bibles, but it's, it means to actually be eaten or devoured by. Zeal for God's house will devour him. And you think about the reality that Jesus is going to his, his death. There's a couple of ways that it speaks to its purpose. One, it's literally true. Because this is the first of two times that Jesus does this. The second time, um, the gospel writers represent that as kind of like the final straw that broke the, the religious leaders back. And then they kicked into, plan their, kicked into action their plan to have Jesus executed. It literally was true. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in again. He cleanses the temple again. Mark tells us the, the, the powers that be met and plan to do away with him. It's also redemptively true. Psalm 69, I have it on the screen. Zeal for your house has consumed me. The very next line is super interesting. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What Jesus is saying is that his desire for the house of God, his desire for the people of God, the family of God, is going to consume him when he bears the reproach of those who reproach God. They all fall on him. Paul quotes that, Psalm 69, the second half of it, in reference to Jesus' work. So we know it's speaking about, both of those phrases are speaking about him. It's redemptively true that Jesus' zeal to bear the reproach of humanity led to him being consumed for us. The reproaches of those who reproach God fell on him. 
Now that word reproach, it's not used very often um, in our culture today. It means like the insults and the shame. The insults and the shame that we offered to God have fallen and the reproach that we deserve because of it have fallen now on Jesus. And he'll be consumed in our place so that we can experience forgiveness. You know, that idea of, of shame is interesting because we, there's a lot of things that Jesus deals with on our behalf. He deals with our guilt. He deals with our sin, but he, he also deals with our shame. And I don't think if you're like me, you probably don't have any shortage of voices in your head and in your heart that, that are just always speaking to condemn you. Oh, like how could you call yourself a Christian? Because, oh, like there's no way you could go to church because like there's shame that's seeking to isolate us and condemn us, this voice of condemnation all the time. The shame and voice of condemnation that I deserved fell on Jesus and he was consumed because he was zealous for that. In fact, Martin Luther, who, who lived like in the 1500s, he says this about, about the this, this shame. He says this. He says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. What of it? Because the reproaches of those who reproached God have fallen on him. And, And we appropriate that by faith. You know, so if you're here this morning and you, and you, um, and you're like living under that condemnation and guilt of your sin. Know that this picture of Jesus cleansing the temple is really a picture of his redemption. He's purifying like the worship of God to the point where he's going to end up offering himself so that you can be set free. You know, and there's one other way it's true. It's also true metaphorically. And when I say it's true metaphorically, I don't mean to say that it's something less than literal. Like oftentimes we think, like metaphorically means like it's something less significant than the reality. But I think metaphors, we use metaphors because we have, a, we have something we're describing that's greater than reality and we're just trying to put it in, our, in words, right? And listen to what Jesus says or what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's talking to uh, the church who were made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from every walks of life, people that had struggled with sin in all sorts of different ways. And he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not those people that were crowded out of the temple because of of all the commercialism that was going on. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You know, what Jesus is saying is that if you destroy my body, I will raise it up again in three days. And Paul says here twice, we are in him, 
We're, we're this new building that's being fitted together. In him, we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. That's what the temple of God was. He's talking about a new temple here. The temple of God is where the glory of God would come to reside. It was, it was meant to be this place in the Old Testament where the nations could come and see God's, like, the goodness of God's rule over the nation of Israel and could see, like, his glory residing on the temple and, and that they would come to faith and fill up that courtyard. But Jesus is like, no, you can tear that building down because the house that I'm going to build is a new house. It's a holy temple. It's something that's done by my, by my spirit, and it's not made with stones. It's made with all of you. But what Paul's talking about here isn't that you specifically individually are a temple. He's talking that all of us corporately are being built together. It's a huge difference. You know, so if you're, if, if, if you're going to understand this story, we need to understand that because of the resurrection of the dead, we know that Jesus is the one who takes away our guilt and our shame. We know that he's the one that, that has brought us into this new family. And as part of this new family, our job is to like, reflect his glory to a world that's dying around us. We're to be light in the darkness, we're to be salt of the earth, right? We're to be the city on the hill. All of us together. So Brian, why don't you come up so you can close us, but I just want to make a couple points of application this morning. You know, first of all, and I, I'm just going to remind us of them because I've already said them, but like, and guard our hearts against like this commercialism that we so let, and consumerism that we so let slip into our worship. If you're, and if you're sensing that that's true in your heart, just confess that to the Lord. He is gracious and compa- uh, compassionate, abounding in loving kindness and slow to anger. You know, and if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ and you're, and you're bearing the burden of your guilt and your shame, you know, Jesus Christ came to take that away. He's the, he was consumed in your place and then raised again from the dead so that you no longer have to live under that guilt. And then for those of us that are Christians, like if you're not like actively seeking to like live out your like relationship in a in a local church, you're actually not doing what God like what Christ was consumed for because he was consumed to build a new temple where we're all fitted together in our unique giftedness and strengths and 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 empowerments from, from God for his glory. And I just want to challenge you to, to like, as we continue through 2023, just to really dive into trying to discern what it is, like where God wants you plugged in and connected in his body. So why don't you close this, Brian, and I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the reality of that, that you are the king, that you have forgiven that you are going to return and establish justice and righteousness um, perfectly in this world and that we won't have to deal with brokenness and sin and shame and and any of that anymore and um, father i would just ask uh, if there's anyone here who's never placed their faith in you that you would just bring conviction upon them and um, and cause them to trust you and, and experience the forgiveness that you um that you freely offer, um, that you abound with. And, and Father, I just uh, pray for all those of us who um, 
have experienced your forgiveness, who are your children, who, who do have your spirit, that we would um, be faithful stewards of that gift um, to us this week and that we would honor you in everything we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.